Well, we're doing a, a series, and the title for the series this fall semester is Courage and Chaos. And I don't think that needs much, much explanation. It's, it's very apparent to all of us that we are living in a, a season of chaos, and it's been this way. Here we are almost to October. It's been this way since early March. And it certainly appears that uh, the chaos is going to, um, well, it appears that it's going to be with us for a while, and it may even intensify. So what do we do about that? Well, we look to the scriptures. In, in 2 Timothy, Paul told young Timothy, he said, preach the word in season and out. The idea that is there is we always preach the word, but there are... There are seasons of life that we go through. We go through times where we struggle and we are fighting the good fight to keep faith and a good conscience and following the Lord, and, but we get, we get blindsided. That happens to individuals and the, the purposes behind that is that God wants to mature us and build spiritual muscle in us and teach us to trust in him. It also happens to nations. It's happened to the whole world. And in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this, that, that God judges the nations. That's a reoccurring theme throughout the scripture. And really what we have seen since last March is that the nations have been judged. And it's continuing. And God, when God judges the nations, he's trying to get their attention. And he's trying to get the attention of individuals. That This is what is happening. So we're to preach the word. But you're to preach the word. If there is a particular season, it's important, and I think this is what Paul was saying to Timothy, you preach the word in season and out. If there's something unique going on, take the word, preach it, and apply it to the season. This is what Paul did in Acts chapter 17. So would you take your Bible and turn with me to Acts 17? In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. And Athens, you know, we think of the Greek philosophers. And they're still with us today, and they're still studied. Verse 22 of Acts 17, and this to me is an example of Paul preaching the word in season and out of season. He's in a particular situation, in a particular context, and he's going to give them the word, but he's going to apply it to the season. Uh, verse 22, so Paul of Acts 17 stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, and they were. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. They had all of these statues and altars to all these different gods. Remember the Greeks and their gods? They had all kinds of gods. They had hundreds of them. And in the midst of this, Paul says, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He's going to preach the word in season and out. The season is, they're a bunch of idolaters. They got a statue to the unknown god. Well, I'm going to make known to you the unknown God. And he goes about it in the next verse. The God who made the world 
and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This has their attention. Because these other gods were sort of like human. And they had limited powers, and you know, there's a whole bunch of them, and they had all these stories and myths. And we're not talking that kind of God. We're talking about the creator God. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath, you can't breathe without him, and all things, whatever you have has come from him. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth. This is called history. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on, on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. So God creates Adam and Eve, and then they have, you know, you have their descendants, and then you have people groups, and you have people of different color, a couple people of different races, and they begin to spread out across the earth, and that was all the plan of God. 27. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. He's the sovereign God. As even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children, in the sense that we are all have our birth from him. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In other words, he's not the statue stuff you've got going on. That's not him. Therefore, having looked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's what you call preaching the word in season and out. Now, what's our season? Well, it goes back to the title I've given for this semester. Uh, as followers of Christ, we need courage in chaos because that's what we've got going on all around us. G.K. Chesterton once said, I never discuss anything else except politics and religion. There is nothing else to discuss. Now, I would submit to you that what Paul did in Acts 17 is that he was discussing politics and religion. He was preaching the word in season and out. So, a question. And um, for an outline, here's three things for you. Number one, why is there chaos in our nation? Number two, we have abandoned God and redefined normal. Number three, how do we find the courage to live in chaos? 
How do we find the courage to live in chaos? Now, I'll tell you up front where we're going to be landing here for the fall. We're going to be landing in Daniel. Because Daniel was a man, along with his, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those four young men, they demonstrated genuine and true courage in the midst of utter chaos. So we'll be looking at the book of Daniel as a backdrop for our fall study. I mean, these guys, these guys are the models on how you do this. Let's go back to our first point. Why is there chaos? Why is there chaos in our nation? Maybe you uh, caught this on TV, but so we had first the Democrat convention, then we had the Republican. I noticed a contrast. Maybe you did too. And you say, no, wait a minute. Are you going to get into politics tonight? Actually, I'm getting into the Bible. But the Bible always bleeds over into politics. Because politics ultimately is about power. And politics ultimately is about authority. And who is it that has all authority and has all power? It's God Almighty. But not everyone agrees with that. We used to be one nation under God. We used to be. What I did uh, read about was that in doing the Pledge of Allegiance, some on the Democratic side decided to cut out one nation under God. When I watched one night of the Republican uh, convention, I was amazed. I was amazed at the difference, and I was amazed at how many people actually named the name of Jesus. Not just God, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're talking, now you're talking Bible stuff. Not just to say God, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and time and time and time again. Now, does that mean everyone on the Republican side is a committed believer in all of that? You know that's not true. But, but, even if you compare the two platforms, there is a marked difference. The scriptures say that, that righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a disgrace to any nation. If you read the Democratic platform, it's a listing of the sins that they are for, that God is against. If you read the Republican platform, again, it's not an inspired document, it, it, and you've got to understand, you say, you should not be political. I'm not being political. I am cutting through the facades and getting to the root. Uh, 
2 Chronicles 12, 32. The men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The men of Issachar, one of the tribes, those men understood the times. You know what that means? They had discernment. They could discern. They, they, they cut through the, the spin. They cut through the press releases, and they looked at what was going on through the lens of the Word of God. That means you have discernment. And the reason you have discernment is that you know the Word of God. We looked at Hebrews 5 last week, and the way that you develop discernment is by being in the Word of God, and when you're in the Word of God, you train your senses to distinguish between good and evil. But if you're not in the Scriptures consistently, you cannot tell the difference between good and evil. You're just carried along, as we'll see in a minute. So, the Republican platform, and we tend to, you know, most people don't even look at the platforms. But that's what they're standing on. We look at personalities, and we look at this, and we look at Twitter accounts, and we look at this. Look at the platform and look at the policies that are implemented. Well, I don't like, I don't like his character. Character, we're all flawed. You're flawed, I'm flawed. Everybody's flawed. As Wayne Grudem said, um, character is reflected in policy and in actions accomplished. And when I see things being done that honor the Lord in his word, I can't ignore that, especially when I'm looking at the other side and there's outright rebellion and anarchy to the Word of God. It's a Psalm 2 situation, which we looked at last week. There is a rage against Almighty God. And we'll go back to Psalm 2 here just for a moment. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Do you think, uh, do you see any relevance with that verse to where we are? I do. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Oh, they sure do. There are all kinds of different rulers. You know, there are different uh, government bureaucracies. There are different agencies, and uh, they get together. And they, we've seen uh, they take their stand. And they're trying to influence, and they're trying to persuade, and they're trying to, you get it. Ultimately, this is against the Lord. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the rulers and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They're ultimately in rebellion against authority and against the authority of God and authority that God has put in place. And we see this all around us. And, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, done with great, uh, it's done with great emotion and with great fervency and with great hatred. 
And we see that, and it, uh, if you watch enough of it, it'll get your blood pressure going. Um, and as we saw last week, verse 4, uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He laughs. Why? Because he's sovereign over nations and rulers. Um, but this is why there's chaos in our nation. Ultimately, it's rebellion against God, it's, re it's rebellion against his authority, and it's rebellion against his word. We used to be one nation under God, but our culture has changed. We looked, I think, last week at Romans 1, that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, beginning with verse 18. And they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So when you know that God is there because he's written the truth on your heart, as Romans 1.18 says, and you observe what he has done in nature, the heavens are telling the glory of God, Psalm 19. There's an architect. There's a creator. There is a God almighty. Um, but when you suppress that truth and you continue to suppress it, God will give you over. And... Um, Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter is how God has given individuals and nations over and we're right there. Everything has shifted, everything has changed. John Stone Street in his, and Brett Kunkel did a great book called A Practical Guide to Culture. It, it's, it was written for parents to understand their kids and what their kids are dealing with. This is the book. It's outstanding. I've, I've read it at least three times and maybe four. He, uh, let me give you a snippet of what Stone Street and Kunkel have written. Ideas spread in a culture through champions. Certainly this would include philosophers and academics. However, these Originators of ideas rarely change culture without significant help from artists, storytellers, entrepreneurs, and educators. Which is kind of what's happened in our country. You know that. You, you go to an institution of higher learning, and it's a, really an institution of higher indoctrination. Kind of like what happened to Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1. For example, the ideas of the sexual revolution, which have dramatically reshaped American culture over the last several decades, owe their origin to folks like Alfred Kinsey, of whom many have never heard. But Kinsey did flawed research. He was a sexual deviant, and um, the media got a hold of this and published him, and they championed him, and started with Kinsey. Um, most people, however, would recognize the name Hugh Hefner founder of Playboy, and perhaps the most influential artist who championed the sexual revolution. When it comes to maintaining and perpetuating culture, institutions play the chief role. The primary institutions of a society are the family, church, and government. But other institutions contribute to culture as well. I would insert here political parties contribute. Culture determines how these institutions function and carry with them the power to enforce a certain way of life. For example, educational inst institutions develop and then enforce certain standards of certification. 
directly becoming the gatekeepers of specific professions. So if you hold to a biblical view and you want to get tenure at a university, good luck. You're, you're, uh, hey, you're not going to get a gold card. In America, the institutions of media decide what counts as news, spending inordinate time on fake controversy while ignoring damning videos about the abortion industry. The effects of institutions ripple through the culture. When social institutions change, and this is what has happened, so does culture. When certain institutions become less influential, others become more influential. In our lifetimes, shifts in the family, such as no-fault divorce, cohabitation, and extended singleness have significantly reshaped American culture. Now that the legal definition of marriage has changed in the United States, those in other professions, like wedding photographers and county clerks, are being forced to comply. As the church becomes less important in the everyday lives of citizens, other sources of moral authority become important for better or worse. This is what has happened. Culture tends to shape us most deeply by what it presents as normal. There you go. Culture tends to shape us most deeply by what it presents as normal. Isaiah 5 really nails what's happened in our, in our nation and in the hearts of a lot of individuals. So Isaiah 5 goes right to the heart of the matter. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That is a large section of our nation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but a, uh, we had a Supreme Court vacancy here recently. And, uh, and the president has nominated a woman, judge, and she's about to go into, uh, the biblical term would be the lion's den, as Daniel went into the lion's den. Now, the previous justice that went through the confirmation process, and these are always interesting to watch, What happened to him was that there were all of these accusations made about him and his personal life that with no substantiation. The, the criticism against him was that he was immoral. Now what's interesting is that this woman who is going into the lion's den, she is already being criticized for being too moral. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, we have abandoned God and we have redefined what is normal. And you can just 
go down the list. And if you say that is good, you will be, uh, believe me, you'll be criticized. And if you say something is evil, you'll be criticized. In other words, if you take the position, if you take God's position in Scripture, you will be criticized and they will attempt to, uh, the phrase is, cancel you out. It's just where we are. So if you're looking for an easy life right now, the Christian life would not be a suggestion. Because everything has changed. Our nation, what's happening, and we touched on this last week, our, our nation is collapsing from within because we've abandoned God, his word, and his moral law. Therefore, we have chaos. The further you move away from God and his word, the more chaos will be in your life. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Who are your counselors? Who influences you? Who do you read? Who do you listen to? How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Are, are the primary influences in your life those who are opposed to God and his word? You're, well, you, you are choosing, you're choosing the wrong path. And what you're choosing is the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom of God. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. And he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which bears fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which will not stand in the judgment. We have a collision going on right now in, in this nation. This is what this is all about. This is why there's so much concern right now. Uh, there's so much concern about where we're going. There's so much concern about the election and about what's going to happen because it's really a tipping point. If you listen to what's being said, if this party doesn't get what they want, then they've already given notice they are going to absolutely blow up the Constitution. They're going to ignore it. They're going to bulldoze it. And they're going to go ahead and continue their lawlessness, and they're already telling us, well, they'll turn D.C. into a state, they'll turn Puerto Rico into a state, they'll pack the court, and what that means is they'll take over, and the democracy is dead. This is called preaching the word in season and out of season. That's what's going on. And so no wonder we're concerned, and no wonder we wonder what's going to happen, and my gosh, there's all kinds of chaos. Yes, and there probably will be more chaos. Let's go to Daniel. We'll, we'll dig into Daniel next week, and in following weeks. But tonight, just a little bit of background on Daniel. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon came 
and took the nation of Judah into captivity for 70 years. Now, for several hundred years, the prophets were telling the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah that, listen, you've turned away from God, you've turned to idols, and that's why you get the prophets. That's why you have the minor prophets. But God continued to, to reach out to them, to speak to them. Most of the kings were evil. Here and there, you'd have a good king. And a good king would read the scriptures and say, Lord, forgive us. He would repent. He would turn back to the Lord like Hezekiah, like Josiah. And when those kings would turn back to the Lord and repent, the favor of God would come upon the nation. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But when they would continue in sin, there would continue to be the judgment of God and they would continue to experience it. So finally, finally, the tipping point happened and what happened in Daniel 1 Verse 1 and 2, there was a massive crisis which resulted in chaos. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's what you call crisis. That's, that's like red China invading us. To get it in your head, this was, what this was all about. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the, line, the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Um, so Judah was conquered, and the nation, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into captivity. Daniel and his buddies were probably 14, 15, 16 when this happened. And it was, uh, it was a, a monumental crisis. And as a result, there was great chaos. Because they hit the tipping point. Ideas have consequences. And there are all these ideas floating around which are the basis of all these philosophies and all of these protests and all of these conflicting um, ways of living life that are foreign to what we have known for over 200 years in this nation. Now, I want to back up and give you a little background here. And I'm going to go to Wayne Grudem, a great theologian, and he writes these words. And you're, just give me a second here, because you, what, what we have to do is, is understand the times and cut through the deception and get at the root of what's behind of this stuff we're seeing going on in this country. Grudem says, the Bible regularly assumes and reinforces a system in which property belongs to individuals, not to the government or to society as a whole. That's from the Bible. And I could give you the scriptures out of Deuteronomy, but I won't take the time to do it. But that comes from the word of God. Property doesn't belong to government. It doesn't belong to society as a whole. God gives property to individuals. That's a biblical concept. We see this implied, Grudem says, in the Ten Commandments, for example, because the Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. It assumes that human beings who own property that belongs to them individually 
It doesn't belong to other people. I should not steal my neighbor's ox or donkey or his Lexus because it belongs to my neighbor, not to me and not to anyone else. But see, there's philosophy going around that is behind all this action that is contrary to that. And what they're doing is they want to steal. And when they burn somebody's business, they've broken this commandment. When they loot somebody's business, they've broken this commandment. You got to look at this through the grid of the Bible. The 10th commandment, Grudem goes on and says, makes this even more explicit when it prohibits not just stealing, but also desiring to steal. What belongs to my neighbor? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Exodus 20, verse 17. The reason I should not covet my neighbor's house or anything else that is or anything else is that these things belong to my neighbor, not to me and not to the community or the nation. This is right where we are. This is what this is all about, the moral law of God. The assumption of private ownership of property found in, the, in this fundamental moral code of the Bible puts the Bible in direct opposition to the communist system advocated by Karl Marx. And by the way, Black Lives Matter just took down their position paper because too many people were finding out that they're a Marxist organization. You see, and they just, well, we can't have, you know, we don't want people knowing. Of course they don't. That's why you just can't send your kids off to school anymore and assume that the character of the teacher is in line with the scriptures. If you weren't depressed before you walked in, allow me to help you tonight. <laughs> Karl Marx said, the theory of the communist may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Abolition of private property. That's from the Communist Manifesto. Gruden goes on and says, one reason why communism is so incredibly dehumanizing is that when private property is abolished, government controls all economic activity. Look at the Soviet Union, look at Cuba. Look at Venezuela, look at North Korea. Look at Red China. And when government controls all economic, all economic activity, it controls what you can buy, where you will live, what job you will have, and therefore what job you are allowed to train for, and where you go to school, and how much you will earn. By the way, in San Francisco, you can go to church Church is open, but it's open to one person, a service. Just one. The government essentially controls all of life, and human liberty is destroyed. Communism enslaves people and destroys human freedom of choice. Watch this. Next sentence. The entire nation becomes one huge prison. That's communism, and that's socialism. And you say, you're getting political. Actually, not. I'm getting biblical. Ideas have consequences. 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, this is what's going on. And again, this is kind of background tonight. So, there's a bit of a diagnosis. We've abandoned God and we've redefined what is normal. And this is picking up steam and it's been done under the university system and we've had young people indoctrinated and you get all this. And it kind of snuck up on us. And now we got some serious issues before us. Serious issues, big time issues. And this is why you're concerned about the upcoming election. Because if it goes a certain way, what we have known in this country is pretty much over. We never used to worry about uh, putting a sign in your yard for a particular candidate. You just did it. You just put a bumper sticker, whoever the guy you're for, you just put it. But now you got to think about it. Have things changed? Oh, yeah. It's chaotic. It's insane. It's lawless. And lawlessness is being encouraged. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the last days, lawlessness would increase. Well, we're seeing that. And it's going to continue to increase. When you just let that go and there are no restraints, the chaos is going to continue and the lawlessness is going to continue. So we're asking the Lord to intervene and to be merciful. And he's calling the shots in this thing. I hope you know that. He is absolutely sovereign over all of this. He's calling the shots. The question is this, all right? What if the worst happens? Martin Lloyd-Jones, tremendous pastor in the 20th century, from I, I think the greatest expository preacher of the 20th century, man of great intellect, medical doctor before he went into ministry. Just a powerful, powerful man who would explain the word of God. I, I, just incredible. Um, he, he ministered in London during the Blitz. Hitler's flying in the, the Luftwaffe every night and bombing. And so they'd meet on Sunday morning and they were just glad the building was standing because they were right next to Westminster where Parliament is. And there were people gathered, but some were missing. There were people there last week who weren't there this week because they had died. And even that night, they would meet Sunday morning, but that night, the sirens would go off and they'd have to take their kids and they'd have to go down into the shelters. Now see, this is the acid test of what you believe. When you're facing death every night, it might be you, it might be your whole family, it might be one of your kids. And Lloyd-Jones spoke to his congregation and at a certain point, I remember reading one of his sermons and he said, so let's address this. We have these fears, we have these worries, we have these concerns and the psychologists tell us that 90% of what we worry about never happens. Lloyd-Jones said, that has never helped me. 
because I always figure, well, what if it does happen? And to be rational, you got to go ahead and think about, well, what if it does happen? And he said, I would encourage you to face your greatest fears. Face them. Write them down. Stare them down. This is the, what is the worst that could happen? And he says, go ahead and define it. This is the very worst that could ever happen to me. And he said, and I didn't know this. Even if it happens, he's still your Lord. He's still your God. He's still your Savior. He still will make a way where there is no way. Now, that's true. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, even the worst things that ever happened to us. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if the worst happened, he would still be in charge. The worst happened to Daniel, and the hand of God was all over Daniel's life and was never taken away. It's just not the way we would hope it would be. But God is still God. Now, we're praying that God would be merciful, and he may indeed be merciful, and we'll thank him for it. But we're not going to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. How, the question is, how do we find the courage of Daniel? Because Daniel lived probably until he was close to 90 years old, maybe past 90. And he lived in this foreign culture, in this foreign land. And not only Daniel, but his three buddies, these guys had unbelievable courage. They had genuine courage. They had true courage. The question is, how do you have, how do you find the courage of Daniel in the midst of chaos? Daniel 11, verse 23. And uh, here's how the book of Daniel breaks down. There are 12 chapters. In, in chapters 1 through 6, we have Daniel's story as he is... Um, given favor by God and raised up to the highest position in the Babylonian kingdom next to Nebuchadnezzar. And you track him through his life in chapters one through six. And they're faced throughout their lives, Daniel and his three friends, with following God or following the false gods, even at the cost of their lives. And it was not a comfortable existence. And they're surrounded by this false narrative. And they're surrounded by this propaganda. But these guys held fast and they had courage. And then in Daniel 7 through 12, Daniel is given visions of what's going to happen in the end times. And it's real specific. All the way up to the coming of the Antichrist who will establish a one-world government, which means that all democracies will be exterminated on the face of the earth. There will not be democracy. It'll be a one-world government that is opposed to God Almighty. So in Daniel 11, that's what's going on. And as he is outlining this, we read this in verse 32 of Daniel 11. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. This is speaking of the Antichrist who is to come. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Now watch this. 
But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. That's true courage. When, when you have true biblical godly courage, there are two things that will be in your life. You will display strength, not panic, not fear, not run away. You'll display strength, and you'll take action, appropriate action. There's inappropriate action, but you won't take inappropriate action. You'll take action that's God-ordained, whatever that might be in your situation. Now, I want you to note something in that verse. Displaying strength and taking action are the result of something else. You got cause and effect going on here. It says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action, appropriate action. There's your cause and effect. So how do I find true courage? How do I find it? How do I maintain it? By knowing God. That's the only way. By knowing God, by knowing God's word, by not redefining normal. You don't, you don't know God by standing over his word and editing the sections you don't like or you don't agree with. You get under the word, you get under the authority of Almighty God, and you bow. And you surrender. And then he strengthens you. As your days, so shall thy strength be. I think that's Deuteronomy 34. As your days, so shall thy strength be. Well, what if I get persecuted? What, I don't think I could go through that. Well, you couldn't go through it right now. You, I don't have the strength to go through it right now. But if you ever got there, he'd give you the strength. Haven't you already seen that in your life? You say, oh, if I had to go through that, I'd never make it. And then you went through it and you got through. Why? Because he gave you strength that you didn't have. That's what he does. It's manna. It's a well-timed help. If they drag you up in front of the council, don't worry about, you, about what you will say. It shall be given to you in that hour. You don't have to prep. They put you in a tough situation, you're not sure what to say. He'll give it to you, exactly what you need to say in the moment. He did that with Daniel, he did it with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He'll do it with us. When we'll get into Daniel, we'll discover three things, and I'm done. I've got a minute 44, and I might actually hit it tonight. Daniel showed courage by three things, and we'll see this in Daniel in this study. Number one, Daniel show, showed courage by fearing God more than men. He feared God more than men. Because men can't even breathe without him. Secondly, he showed courage by trusting God with his future. They make a law, we'll see this, you know this story, they make a law, you can't pray to any God other than the Babylonian God. 
Well, Daniel prays to his God three times a day, and his enemies knew it, and so they got the king to go ahead and sign it. He had a bunch of papers. He didn't have time to read the fine print. You have to sign the bill before you know what's in the bill. That just came to me in this hour. When he knew it was signed, he knew it was law, you know what he did? He just went ahead and kept doing what he's doing. Well, the penalty is death. Fine. <laughs> um, you, you see, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. What was the appropriate action? Go ahead and pray three times a day. Well, they might throw you in the lion's den. No, they will throw you in the lion's den. Well, you might get killed. I might get killed. But you see, he was trusting God with his future. Number three, he acknowledged God's governance. He acknowledged God's governance over all events. God was absolutely in control, and God was absolutely in charge, including every day of his life and his appointment with death at the end of his life. He could not die until his work was done. This is the truth we live off, guys. We know God. We know his word. We don't know what's coming. We don't have to know what's coming. We know him. So keep your Bible open. And keep a teachable heart. And don't look too far out. And if you're making plans, make good biblical plans. But don't fall in love with plans. Write them in pencil. Because he's got a plan that's best. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth, that you are the stability of our times. Thank you that you are in charge of this whole process that's going on in this nation right now. We would ask for mercy. We would ask for your... <laughs> we repent. Judgment begins with the household of God. We repent. We turn from our sin. We turn to you. And we'll trust you. Give us the courage of Daniel in the days ahead. You promised you'll do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.